Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 16. In fact, we'll just read one verse, verse 16. There again God thunders from the top of Mount Sinai. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. George O'Leary coached football at Georgia Tech for seven seasons. He had a winning record of 52-33 and and took his team to five straight bowl games. O'Leary's successful stint at Georgia Tech seemed to put him in a position for his dream job. And on December, in December of 2002, O'Leary was announced as the new head football coach of the most famed college football program in all the land, the Notre Dame Fighting Irish. O'Leary himself of Irish descent seemed to be the perfect fit. But five days after he was hired, O'Leary resigned in disgrace. You see, it all came crashing down on George O'Leary after his very first day on the job. Notre Dame received a phone call from a reporter who had tried to interview a few of O'Leary's former teammates. Though his resume claimed that O'Leary had lettered three years in football as an offensive lineman and as a fullback, no one at the University of New Hampshire remembered anything about his career. The reporter did some digging, and he uncovered documentation that showed that O'Leary himself had fudged on the facts. Years before, George O'Leary had applied for a coaching job at the University of Syracuse, and he was handed a form that called for him to write down some of his athletic accomplishments. His high school record wasn't quite as impressive as he'd like, so he decided to embellish his achievements a bit. O'Leary lied on the form. He was on the team at New Hampshire, but due to sickness, due to injury, he never got into a game. And yet he said he lettered for three years. And as it turns out, O'Leary's resume also claimed that he earned a master's degree in education from the New York University. Again, though he attended the school, he never got a degree. And for 21 years, these lies followed George O'Leary to Syracuse, to Georgia Tech, to Notre Dame. I'm sure there were times throughout his career that he thought about correcting those falsehoods. But you see, once you tell a lie, it's easier to live with it than it is to clear it up. But what you don't clear up will eventually blow up. And on that faithful day in December of 2002, what seemed like at the time just an innocent, harmless comment, a harmless action, just a little white lie, suddenly turned George O'Leary's dream job into a nightmare. To his credit, after the incident, O'Leary called what he had done a selfish and thoughtless act. He tried to explain his circumstances. I was a young married father seeking employment. Evidently, he thought the responsibility of providing for a family necessitated him bending the truth and compromising his integrity. In the end, though, the shortcuts and the compromises and the justifications brought a successful career and a good reputation to ruin. When it all happened, I felt sorry for George O'Leary. But what's really sad is the take that O'Leary's brother had on what happened. For rather than be remorseful, the other O'Leary became indignant. He said this, Is anyone trying to tell me that resumes are truthful? 
In the America where we live, the willingness to lie on a resume is an indication of how much you want the job. You would think that after O'Leary's incident, everyone in America would be scanning their resumes for inaccuracies. But apparently that's not the attitude of most people. Philip Ryken, who refers to the George O'Leary saga in his book on the Ten Commandments, he tells about a survey that was done on nearly three million job applicants. Of those applications, nearly 50% contained one or more falsehoods. There was a report in an issue of USA Today that actually identified the specific falsities that most commonly occur on career resumes. 71% record a false number of years on the job. 64% exaggerate accomplishments. 60% exaggerate the size of the corporation one managed. 52% turn partial college work into a full degree. And 48% reported larger compensation than had actually been earned. Hey, if you're a human resource officer who gets paid to review resumes, you need to hire a private investigator. Evidently, the average resume is no longer a believable document. Resumes have gone from fact to fiction, perhaps even fantasy. In today's world, lying has become epidemic. Everywhere we turn, our heroes, people we once respected, end up discredited by their dishonesty. The most recent example is Major League Baseball. Just before Christmas, several of baseball's top stars admitted to using illegal steroids. It heightened the suspicion that lots of players are gaining an unfair advantage in trying to cover it up by lying. We wonder if the records being set today reflect honest play or do they reflect a deception. But lies and deception have invaded other arenas as well. Pulitzer Prize winner Joseph Ellis was caught telling stories of his combat days in Vietnam, while in reality he spent his war years teaching history at West Point. Evidently, he was so in love with history that he started making up his own. Who can forget the singing sensation, Millie Vanilli? The dance band duet sold millions of records, and they won a Grammy Award for Best Vocal Group of the Year, but they were the first group to have to give back a Grammy. When it came out that the voices on their albums were not their own, they lip-synced their songs. Thought maybe I could try to get away with that. And of course, one of the most infamous lies of all was spoken by a former United States president when he said, I did not have sex with that woman. Lies in our modern world are becoming more and more common, and it's not just celebrities who manufacture these fabrications. So do the common Joes. In their book, The Day America Told the Truth, authors Patterson and Kim estimate that 91% of all Americans regularly embellish the truth. They comment, we lie and don't even think about it. It's as if the whole society has lost its love for the truth. In his chapter on the Ninth Commandment, Philip Ryken also quotes a columnist from Time Magazine who says this, The injunction against bearing false witness, branded in stone and brought down by Moses from the mountaintop, has always provoked ambivalent conflicting emotions. On the one hand, nearly everybody condemns lying. 
on the other. Nearly everybody does it every day. This past Friday night, Kathy and I were laying in bed together and I was talking about my sermon and, and we kind of put our heads together and we composed a top ten list. Here are the top ten most common lies told every day. And, and Kathy and I came up with most of them and then I had to go back later and sort of fill in the rest of them to come up with ten. So I don't want to blame her on all of them, but... Here's the top 10 most common lies you hear every day. Number 10, I'm sorry I'm late. I got caught in traffic. Sure you did. Number nine, honey, I didn't hear you say that. <laughs> Kathy came up with that one. <laughs> Number eight, officer, this is my first time speeding. <laughs> Number seven, I'll turn 39 years old this year. Number six, I never watch television except for the History Channel. Number five, but we can still be good friends. Number four, I didn't gain a pound over the holidays. Number three, this is my real hair color. Number two, sorry we can't come to the phone right now. And number one... Honey, I'm sorry, but I've got a headache tonight. <laughs> this past week, I read about a company called Alibi Agency that specializes in helping you fabricate a lie. In fact, they provide the needed paper trail to cover up your actual activities. They supply dummy invitations to business or social events, ticket stubs to sporting events that you were supposed to have attended. They even have a phony switchboard that the person you're lying to can call and get some verbal confirmation that you were where you said you'd be. Of course, it's all a lie. The company has an advertisement that says, we can tailor make an alibi to your specifications. It's incredible. Charles Colson calls us a post-truth society. We live in a day of situational ethics where the end justifies the means. People say, if a lie helps rather than harms, well then go ahead and lie. We don't like to admit that there's a price to be paid later. We forget the warning in Proverbs chapter 19 verse 9. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who speaks lies shall perish. There is always a price to pay when you tell a lie. Hey, today, university professors and even high school teachers tell our young people that truth doesn't exist, that there's really no such thing as truth. So why do we act surprised when some students don't tell the truth to their parents or their employer or their friends or the police and later in their life, even their spouse? If you're a Christian, God has called you to tell the truth. He wants you to be a truth teller. God has called you to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. John chapter 1 tells us, The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said that I am the way, the truth, and the life. You can't love Jesus without being a lover and an upholder of the truth. Nor can you be filled with the Holy Spirit without having a desire for the truth. 
For Jesus calls him the spirit of truth. And when the spirit fills and overflows your life, you can't stop, play fast and loose with the truth. You stop. You begin to love the truth and respect the truth and you want to speak the truth. You begin to take truth telling seriously. God wants us to decide in advance that we're going to be truthful and honest in our communications and interactions with other people. Truth and integrity need to be trademarks for every Christian's character. A commitment to the truth should be a non-negotiable. How important is it to you to be known as a person who keeps his word? The ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, is strategic to the formation and the continuation of a peaceful society. Think about it. Every society, every nation is held together by honest communication. If I can't trust what you say, then it's impossible for us to really have a meaningful relationship. Business breaks down. Marriage is mute. The courts become dysfunctional when people play fast and loose with the truth. When a person's word is no longer his bond. When contracts aren't worth the paper they're printed on. When the judicial system is allowed to circumvent the truth by skilled lawyers who sort of twist it to win their case. When crooked politicians say anything to get elected. When the phrase political promise becomes an oxymoron. When truth-telling is no longer practiced, trust breaks down among people. And healthy social and commercial interaction becomes a near impossibility. Hey, an honest society is built on honest people. The immediate context of the ninth commandment has to do with truth-telling in a court of law. The commandment forbids perjury, bearing false witness, lying under oath. And it implies something to every member of the legal system. A judge, for example, should be fair and impartial. He should not bear false witness. The prosecutor should have no ulterior motive other than a desire for justice. The defense should seek fair and lawful treatment. And the witness should tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. In other words, everyone involved in the legal process should put truth first. Not bearing false witness was particularly vital in ancient times. Before the development of rules for evidence, in the days of forensic science, a person's testimony was all important. Often the whole trial swung on the word of a single witness. And since many of the crimes in ancient times carried a death sentence, a false witness could be lethal. This is why God told his people in Deuteronomy 19, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. In other words, it took one witness to gain a conviction. It took more than one witness. It it had to have some corroborative testimony. There had to be two or three witnesses. And if a man was found to be a false witness, verse 19 of that same chapter says, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. In other words, the perjurer serves the same sentence that he tried to pin on his enemy. What goes around comes around. It was a serious crime to bear false witness and for good reasons. But the ninth commandment applies to more 
than just the court of law. You see, this commandment, you shall not bear false witness, sticks its nose into every corner of our business. Truth-telling should be a Christian's modus operandi in every area of our lives, in our marriage, in the workplace, the marketplace, the home, the church, at the ballpark, in our dealings with our friends. We should always be an advocate for the truth. In Hosea chapter 4, verse 10, the prophet there levels an accusation against the nation Israel. He says, There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. By swearing and lying, killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break all restraint. Notice Hosea there is going down the Ten Commandments. Lying, killing, stealing, committing adultery. It's interesting though that what was rendered bearing false witness in Exodus 20 is mentioned by Hosea as simply lying. Rather than use the technical legal term for perjury, Hosea used a general word that refers to all sorts of lying. You see, bearing false witness involves anything that we might do to fabricate a falsehood. You can lie and tell an outright untruth about someone else. Or you can tell a half-truth. You know these half-truths. They're the truth maybe, but sprinkled with a little lie here or there. Or perhaps you can water down the truth. Or even exaggerate the truth. This is what husbands and wives do when they use the words never and always. No one's ever that consistent. That they're never anything or that they're always something. He never does this. She never does that. She always... Those are usually lies. Nobody's that consistent. Hey, you can also bear false witness by making a completely truthful statement, yet saying it with an incriminating tone of voice. Or repeat it out of context, for that matter. It reminds me of the man who encountered a traffic accident one night. And he bravely pried a woman out of a car. She was pinned in her car, this mangled car. And he got her out of the car. He picked her up in his arms. He carried her down to the hospital that was down the street a few blocks. It was a valiant act, a wonderful deed on the man's part. But later, a woman who saw the incident and really had a grudge against the man's wife, he came, she came up to her and she said, Last night, I saw your husband walking down the street with another woman in his arms. Well, it was the truth. Technically, her comment was true, but it was far from truthful, wasn't it? Guys, there are all kinds of ways to fib. There are occasions when just sitting there in silence is the worst kind of lie. When another person is speaking evil things about a friend or another person is being maligned and you know those statements are not true and you sit there and you never speak up. Hey, that's the worst kind of lie. You need to set the record straight. We need to understand that God hates lying. In Proverbs 6, verse 16, we're told, These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to Him. And then He lists them. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. Notice that at least two of these seven sins have to do with bearing false witness. 
God hates a lying tongue or a false witness who speaks lies. If you've ever doubted God's hatred for lying, remember the story in Acts chapter 5. Chapter 5 of the book of Acts is a killer of a Bible study. It's a drop-dead kind of passage. It's a knock-em-over chapter. Ananias and Sapphira apparently were just dying to get into the Bible. Here was an all-American couple. Ananias was probably a former quarterback. Sapphira, the ex-cheerleader. They were leaders in the community, models of success. Now they both had embraced Jesus. They had become part of the church. God never commanded for anyone to sell their property and pool their resources. It was just sort of a practice that the church picked up on. The members adopted. But Ananias and Sapphira, they didn't want to be left out. They didn't want to look bad. And to this carnal couple, image was everything. And so they had to appear as spiritual, as sacrificial as everyone else. And so they sold a parcel of property, said they were giving all to God, but they kept back some of the proceeds for themselves. In other words, they lied. When Peter called them out, he says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? Peter calls this couple out on the carpet and they never get up. Ananias is first. Sapphira comes next. Both drop dead for their deception and their hypocrisy and their lies. You know, we should all be thankful that God doesn't see fit to treat all liars in the church that way. Apparently, though, he decided to use Ananias and Sapphira to set an example, to send a message. God wanted to show us what he thinks of bearing false witness. It's interesting, though, that the statement Peter makes to Ananias, he says to him, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Peter notices that it was Satan who prompted Ananias to lie. And this should come as no surprise. In John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus is speaking to the legalistic Jews when he says, You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Notice Jesus calls Satan a murderer and then he calls him the father of lies. And I want you to see the connection between these two sins between murder and between lying. You see, the ninth commandment is closely related to the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. Bearing false witness is murder without bloodshed. It's murder without the physical of violence. It's assassination of character. It's murder of reputation. It's getting shot with a silencer. Alan Redpath puts it, Slander is a lie invented and spread with the intent to do harm. That is the worst form of injury a person can do to another. Compared to one who does this, a gangster is a gentleman and a murderer is kind because he ends life in a moment with a stroke and a little pain. But the man guilty of slander ruins a reputation which may never be regained and causes lifelong suffering. Notice the progression of these last few commandments. Murder robs us of life itself. Adultery destroys marriage, the institution that propagates life. 
Stealing takes away the resources used to sustain life. But slander robs us of the rewards of a truly successful life. It destroys a good reputation. And this is why Satan loves lies. It's because he hates people. And if he can annihilate a life, he'll do his best to wipe it out, with wipe out whatever good that has been done. This is why he's always stirring up lies and gossip and slander. The old Puritan pastor Thomas Watson, he once wrote, He that raises a slander carries the devil in his tongue, and he that receives it carries the devil in his ear. Satan wants to ruin lives. Behind every tidbit of gossip is a satanic plot to assassinate a character and ruin a person's influence and usefulness. And Jesus said, Satan is the father of lies. He is the originator of all lies and all slander. Hey, when you find yourself sharing that juicy little tidbit of gossip with someone else, you need to listen carefully because Satan is whispering in your ear, Who's your daddy? Did you know that the Greek word for devil is the word diabolos? It's a compound word. Bolos means to throw or to cast. Dia means crosswise or diagonally. In other words, it means to cast out an idea, but in a crooked or a diagonal or a contorted manner. And this is what Satan does. His lies are rarely whoppers. He prefers to twist the truth, to start out with the truth, but give it a meaning that God never intended. You see, Satan is the spin manager, the ultimate spin manager. He always is putting out a spin or a twist on the truth. Whereas Jesus, remember, he spoke in parabolas or parables. Again, bolus means to throw or cast, but para means alongside or parallel with the truth. Jesus wants to give us insight into the truth. Satan's goal is to distort it and to contort it. Satan loves for you to tell a lie because he knows that when you tell the first lie, the probability of the second lie increases exponentially. And then when you tell a second lie, the third lie is pretty much inevitable. And then when you tell the third lie, the fourth lie is a foregone conclusion. For once you start lying, you have to tell others in order to cover it up. And a vicious cycle starts of cover-up and deception. And lying is extremely stressful. When you're living under a lie, you can never relax. You're always dodging questions. You're always covering your tracks. You're always trying to make sure you say just the right thing. You're trying not to forget what lies you've already told. This is why eventually every lie gets uncovered. You know, a liar ends up telling so many lies to hide his previous lies that he finally forgets what's true and not true. A liar ends up stumbling over his own trail of falsehood and gets caught in his own deceitfulness. It's inevitable. This is why the old saying is so true. Honesty is the best policy. There are a myriad of reasons why we lie. Satan is certainly the father of lies. And he does prompt our lying often. But so often our weaknesses, our own selfishness causes us to resort to deception. 
Fear of consequences, for example. Fear of punishment will cause us to lie. We tell a bill collector that the check is in the mail. Or a policeman that our speedometer was broken. Or a teacher that the dog ate the homework. Because we fear the penalty that's going to follow. We lie to our spouse or we lie to our parents because we don't want them to be disappointed with us. But when that lie gets uncovered, a trust is broken and a relationship gets injured. And in the end, the lie causes far greater disappointment. It would be better to just confess it up front. We lie to get back at people sometimes. For some people, trash talking is an art. Gossip, of course, is deadly. People resort to lies out of revenge or retribution. People lie also because of feelings of inferiority or insecurities. You know, they, they don't, can't stand to look foolish or, or to look inadequate in the eyes of their peers. And so they doctor up the truth. They drop names. Or they embellish all their stories. Or they lie on their resume. Or they brag about their past achievements. Lots of people like to spruce up the truth to enhance their image and to make themselves look better than they really are. Sheer laziness and irresponsibility are also reasons people lie. It's why they sign their name to a test knowing that the answers they put down really didn't belong to them. They've cheated. They were too lazy, too negligent to study. And perhaps the most common reason that people lie is to accommodate their own selfishness. They lie basically to get what they want. They lie to manipulate the situation their way. They lie to close the contract or to finalize the deal or to put more money in their pocket so they sell out their integrity in a heartbeat. This is a sad way to live. Let me suggest, though, the ultimate reason that we lie, I believe, is a lack of faith. If we believe in God's mercy, if we trust in God's protection, we won't fear what man can do to us. We won't have to lie to avoid penalty. If we believe vengeance belongs to the Lord, that in the end God will settle every score, God will humble every foe, there's no need for us to seek revenge through our lying. If we believe that God loves us and that He has exalted us in Christ Jesus, that we're now God's kids and important in His eyes, there's no reason for us to be in bondage to other people's opinions. If we believe in the power of the Holy Spirit that will rise and raise us up above our own laziness and inertia and take responsibility for our God-given callings and commitments, there's no reason for us to lie as a result of our negligence. And if I believe in Jesus, that He is my Lord, I'll repent of my selfish living. I'll surrender my life to Jesus Christ. I'll live for His glory and for His purposes. This is why I say the key to truth-telling is to believe in the truth. To trust in the spirit of truth and to follow Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. The ninth commandment is not just a prohibition against lying and bearing false witness. Moses says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. All forms of lying are evil. When we try to lie to God, we show our ignorance and forfeit his help. When we lie to ourselves, we lose our peace of mind. We become detached eventually from reality. All kinds of strange and destructive patterns develop in our lives. But the ninth commandment isn't just about lying to God or to ourselves. More specifically, it states we shouldn't bear false witness against 
our neighbor. God is concerned about us doing harm to each other with our words. As truth tellers, we need to be totally accurate when we make comments about another person. Which means, if we don't have all of the information, and rarely do we, then there should be no communication. It's sad to count up how many people who have had a good reputation have seen that reputation soured and even destroyed because another person made an idle comment. Remember, gossip is nothing less than character assassination. Gossip has been defined as hearing something about hearing something you like about someone you don't. Or here's another comment. A tongue three inches long can kill a man six feet tall. Oh, the trouble that's caused by the human tongue. Did you know the tongue is the only body part that comes in its own cage? Most of the time we just need to shut the cage. Keep it locked up right there in your mouth. James 3 verse 6 tells us the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. As kids, we we use that expression, liar, liar, pants on fire. Well, James believed that too. He said that about the tongue. He said it's on fire. It's like the tiny match that gets thrown out of the car window and torches thousands of acres. And the arson is the devil. As James says, the wagging, gossipy tongue is set on fire by hell. The famous Greek poet Homer once said, the tongue of man is a twisty thing. Homer also said, that ball's way back. It's out of here. Reminds me of the woman who got mad at her pastor. She started spreading vicious rumors all around town. And the gossip damaged his reputation severely. And after several years, the Lord convicted her heart. And she came back to the pastor and she apologized to him. But the pastor told her, he said, I'm happy to forgive you. I'm glad to forgive you. But first, I want you to go throughout the town. And I want you to place a feather on the doorstep of every house. She agreed to do so. When she returned, the pastor asked her, now go. And retrieve the feathers. And of course the woman shook her head. It's impossible. The wind has blown those feathers everywhere. And the pastor said, that's right. And I gladly forgive you. But make sure you realize that you can never undo the damage that your untrue words have done. We need to remember that. I've got a little acrostic I want to share with you this morning. That you need to use the next time you're tempted to speak about a person or to... Share something you assume about their motives. The next time you speak about somebody without really knowing the facts, before you're tempted to do that, I want you to run it through this little acrostic. First, think of the word think. That's what you need to do. Think. Think, would you? T-H-I-N-K. First, think T. Is this true? Is it true? Second, think H. Is it helpful? Well, it may be true, but it might not be helpful. It might not resolve anything. So what if it's true if it's not helpful? Third, think I. Is it inspiring? Does it condemn or does it offer encouragement? Fourth, think in. Is it necessary? There needs to be a legitimate reason why I should say this. 
And then fifth, K, is it kind? Is this a loving, caring comment to make about another person? Guys, think. Is it true? Is it helpful? Is it inspiring? Is it needful? Is it kind? Think before you speak. And you might just save a life. Let me close by making a point I mentioned earlier. If you have a problem with the ninth commandment, if you're not really a truth teller, then I have a suggestion for you. You'll never be truthful in your comments about other people until you become truthful with God and until you become truthful with yourself. Stop lying to yourself. Stop lying to God. And then you'll stop lying about others. You see, when I come clean before God, when I confess my sin, when I admit my weaknesses, when I just sort of lay out before God my fears and my hang-ups, when I confess everything there is about me to God, I eliminate all of the barriers that are keeping me from receiving the help that I need from God. And when I begin to receive from God, then I can come clean with myself. Hey, I know I'm loved regardless. I know I stand in God's grace. I can now admit to the person that I really am. And I can begin to go to work on real changes in my life that I really need to make. And when I begin to see myself as a child of God, when I come clean before God, when I'm honest with myself, then I can start viewing other people from the proper perspective. When I get right with God, then His love begins to bubble up in my heart. I start becoming sensitive to the remarks that I'm making about other people. And God gives me the power to speak His truth in love. Once there were three pastors out in a boat. They were fishing together when one of the men commented. He says, you know, guys, he says, something's really been bothering me. He says, I, I keep a little bottle of wine right there in my office. And, and sometimes the pressures just get real great. And I pull out that bottle of wine and I take a nip or two. Sometimes I even get a little sauced. And I know I need to stop. And would you guys please pray for me? And, of course, they, they both agreed that they would. Well, a few minutes later, the other pastor who was there fishing, he, he confessed. He says, you know, I've got a problem, too. He said, you know, every now and again, I'm in a convenience store, and I walk across a magazine rack, and I pick up a pornographic magazine. He says, it's terrible, and I, and I know I shouldn't do it, and, and I also need your prayers. And they both said, yeah, we'll, we'll pray for you. Well, the third pastor just sort of sat there in complete silence until finally his buddies sort of turned to him, and they said sarcastically, they said, well... I suppose you're just perfect. You've got no problems, huh? And, and that's when the pastor responded, Oh, no, that's not true at all. As a matter of fact, I've got a terrible gossip problem, and I just can't wait to get back to town. <laughs> Guys, if we want to be the people that God wants us to be, if we want to be the church that God has called us to be, then every one of us, from the pastor through the people, every one of us, we need to become truth-tellers. We need to love the truth. We need to uphold the truth. We need to always speak the truth in love. We need to be men and women of integrity. And if you've told a specific lie, I encourage you this morning to ask God to forgive you. He will if you'll confess it and admit it. 
And if you've injured another person with an untruth or an exaggeration or a half-truth perhaps, then you need to go to that person. And you need to ask them to forgive you. Let me close with Ephesians 4 verse 25. It sort of sums it all up. There Paul says, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. Guys, let's all be truth tellers. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for these commandments. And we thank you again, Lord, for the warning, for the negative side of the commandment that we should not bear false witness against our neighbor. But we also know, Lord, that there's a positive side to this commandment, that you've called us to truthfulness and honesty and integrity. And so, Father, help us to renew our commitment this morning to the truth. To, to not saying the tempting thing, to not saying the gossipy thing, rather to be people of integrity, people who keep their word, people whose promise can be counted on and can be trusted in. Lord, I, I pray that you'll encourage us to begin to practice truth-telling in all of our relationships, how, how our lives would improve, how our plight would be more successful, how the people around us would love us more if we paid careful attention to being people of our word. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us all, Lord. And if there's someone here, Lord, who you've spoken to their heart this morning, you've spoken specifically about something in their life that's wrong, that's out of order, I pray, Lord, that they would confess their sin. And perhaps they've done real harm to another brother or sister in the body. Lord, I pray that they would go to that person this week and ask for their forgiveness. Help us to remember, Lord, that without confession, without repentance, there can be no forgiveness. And so, Father, help us to make the necessary changes, to be the people you want us to be. And, Lord, we trust in your spirit and in your power, Lord, to equip us and to help us. We love you, Lord, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.